Well, hi, everyone, and welcome to the Modern Cotton Story, sponsored by E3 Sustainable Cotton. I'm Jennifer Crumpler, Fiber Development Manager and Manager of the E3 Sustainable Cotton Program from BASF. I'll be the host of today's program and really excited um, to host and to learn a little bit more about the current market for textile sustainability, the use of cotton in different mills around the world. Um, so really excited about today's program. So I'm joined today by industry consultant Bob Andeshak. Hey, Bob, how are things going? Jennifer, I'm doing very well. Thank you. Hope All you right, are. Awesome. I am. I am. I'm doing great. Um, I think we're maybe slowly getting some over the hump of the coldness and getting to some warm weather and sunshine. So that um, always makes me in a lot better mood. <laughs> <laughs> totally agree. Uh, awesome. Well, it is my pleasure to introduce today's guest um, to all of our listeners. Um, Emran Sachitep is the Managing Director of Atlantic Mills based in Thailand. So Emran, thank you so much for joining us today and um, taking time late at night for you to be here and um, do the podcast with us. You're welcome, Jennifer. It's good to be here. Awesome. Well, Imran, you've had a very accomplished career in the textile industry. And I think with, um, you know, your name and others known very well in the industry, um, Atlantic Mills, as many know, is a leading denim mill in Asia. And even more so than that, um, Imran, you're an expert in the global textile garment industry, especially in denim. And I know the um, podcast today, we're really going to ask a lot of questions and just talk about the market and textiles and things that are going on. But before we do that, we'd love to have you talk a little bit about your background so that our listeners um, can learn more about you. And then maybe also just introduce your company, Atlantic Mills, to our industry, uh, to our listeners, um, for those who maybe aren't necessarily in the denim industry, but in the agriculture space as well. So I have a the background of our company is a bit interesting um, and I'd like to go back to the history of where, yeah. where we started from. Um, actually in the 1930s my, my grandfather lived in, um, well he wasn't from India obviously, and during the British rule everything had um, obviously collapsed right so, so he, was, he, was, he was one of the lone uh, survivors of that, that time um, and he ended up in Thailand after, after basically jumping on one of the boats you know? and um, and started basically trading here in here in Thailand. Um, essentially, with nothing on him, he went through all the different uh, places in Thailand and started trading in textile. Bought a couple of yards, resold it, you know. And um, and what ended up happening was that business became part of our became very very good for the family and the company. Um, essentially, so so he set up an office in the northeast part of Thailand. That's where actually where the a lot of the trading of fabrics was was happening at the time, not in Bangkok, where we are right now. And from there, then, as he grew his business, he moved to Bangkok. Now, one of the, one of the interesting things my, my grandfather did, which, which I've told very few people about, is that he sent his oldest son to Japan in the 1960, 1960s. So imagine sending your son to Japan at mm -hmm. a time when nobody speaks English right after World War II, um, yeah. having to learn the language from scratch. And from there, obviously, he became... Uh, he started trading products from, from Japan, sending it to Thailand. Now, it wasn't necessarily only denim. It was pretty much every product at that time because Jap Japan, Italy, you know, a lot of these countries were specifically, specifically making a lot of specialty products nowhere else in the world had access to. Um, hand quality, of course. Uh, we didn't go to the, he didn't go into the first grade quality product. He bought secondhand products there and then sold it back here to Thailand for the local market. 
So we set up an office here in Japan. Over time, obviously, that got better and better. He created really, really good connections in Japan, and the product came to be a very, very. I mean, he started learning what the product was all about, how denim had evolved, how it was sold, the Japanese uh, detailed to to product, you know, which in which no other country has. You know, it's 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 a specialty. If you go to a restaurant in Japan, you know, it's it's one cook. He doesn't let anybody else touch his kitchen, right? If he's not there, he closes the kitchen. <laughs> So similarly, you know, it's it's kind of it's kind of that 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 small detail that he learned. Um, having said that, of course, then my my father joined the business. My father and my brother, uh, my uncle were about twenty years of difference. My father joined the business here in Thailand, and he started the trading, buying in the goods from from Japan, and then um and then selling here locally in Thailand. Um, over time, of course, we understood how Japanese product looked like. We had we had to think of you know how how to kind of get the one thing that we didn't obviously. Um, one thing we wanted to be focused on, different from only the blues and the blacks of Japan, was to get some of that that alternative color, which we found was very prominent in the European um, in the European side of uh, textiles. So from there, uh, a cousin of mine, who's my partner today, he went and uh, he he went to Italy and started obviously scoping into a lot of the products there, and became the second-hand dealer for for uh, second uh, second-choice dealer for the Italian mills. And then that obviously grew and grew and grew, and the business obviously flourished. We understood then the product. Now we've reached a point where we've wanted to make the product even look better and produce it here in Thailand. So that's when we went and scouted for factories here in Thailand to teach them the idea and how to get that product in place. Because here the people were selling basic fabrics at that time. We're talking about the 1990s when stretch didn't really exist uh, as much as yet. So obviously that was being scouted on. And then, but what happened was. The product itself kept on going. Um, the product itself kept on. Uh, the people producing the product in factories there used to go around us and sell to our customers, mm. as you can understand, right? Um, there was nobody who was really loyal to each other. So that's when one of the managers of one of the factories in in Thailand um, decided that you know he was not. He he knew that we were not being treated fairly, and he he came on board with us, and that was the birth of Atlantic Mills um, in two thousand and two. So the company's pretty young. It's about 19 years or 20 years old now. Um, now, the history of Atlantic Mills actually dates back to Burlington, USA. Um, Burlington had actually set up a factory in Longford, Ireland. Um, Atlantic Mills was actually on the Atlantic Ocean. We're on the Pacific now. So that when they went, uh, when they closed down in 97, we took, we took all their machines, um, uh, all the, the whole factory, moved about 150 containers here to Thailand and started the factory from a secondhand uh, machine uh setup and that's how we actually do on the mill so piece wise as we've changed machines um obviously in 2008 uh, we bought in japanese machinery from japan simply because we have people believe in us japan where very few people can go into japan and just walk into a machine supplier and say you know we want to buy from you you know how that works right so so we're able to get japanese technicians with that with 40 years experience from uh from the areas of okoyama and they came along as well, and they joined us about 15 years ago. So that's how, kind of how our, our company has grown. It's grown organically. Um, yeah. We never went. We never went and bought a piecemeal factory from scratch and started that way. We never believed in that. And similarly, eight years ago, we bought actually our the spinning factory um, from our supplier who decided to close. You know, so 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 we really. You know really what part? Um, so Emran, where? So it's interesting you bring up Burlington Mills and Atlantic Mills. So actually where I'm from in southeastern part of North Carolina, we had three 
facilities in my hometown. They were Burlington. So Burlington had three plants there um, and others. So that's really interesting that how it kind of, how all, you know, a lot of, and we, they shut down. I'm around that time and, you know, moved out. So it's really interesting to hear that's how you guys got started with, with some of that machinery. Correct. Yeah. So, so obviously today we don't own any machinery anymore. Yeah. Everything is brand new. Um, but, but we've obviously grown over that time simply because we have to change, you have to change your weaving machines, you know, it's, um, right. Data at that point. So, so yeah, that's basically how the company grew. Um, we've been involved with a lot of textile players globally, um, to, to, to have shaped us to who we are today. Let's put it that way. <laughs> no, I know. No, I know. I'm how you got the name, uh, Atlantic Mills. That's very cool. <laughs> that's really cool. Um, your background, you know, I've you and I've known each other many years, so it's really terrific to have you on the show. And um, your background is really, uh, it's really from like ground up in the textiles, right? That's probably yeah, fair. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but I think the business that we all work in is like really going through a lot of change these days. It seems, mm -hmm. right? So, uh, I was curious to get your take on. Um, things like the uh, all this trade trouble between the U.S. and China. How how is that affecting your business? Well, two years ago, when when uh, when the administration decided to to reduce the trade with China, um, obviously, even with the cotton that's being grown in China itself, um, a lot of brands had to look for alternative sourcing, um, and it was a, quite a surprise to me because one of the big stories we've been talking about to brands for the last. 10 or 15 years, especially in the US, is about how we would be that perfect fit uh, for them, simply because we're strategically in the right place. I mean, Thailand today, it has access to, um, has a shipping time of, of 10 days to more than half of the world's population, um, to, to put in, in, in easy terms, you know? So, so, you know, having that access point is, 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 is obviously worked to our benefit. So I guess those things rang in people's uh, heads because I've been talking about it for 10 years that when they had to look for alternative sourcing outside China, moving that 80% of their business in China to, let's say, other places around the world, um, they, they, they came to us. So, so actually during COVID, um, we've actually benefited from that significantly. Um, not because of COVID, just because of the whole uh, change of, of, of the business from, from the brands themselves, uh, just not being dependent on China as a whole. Um, obviously, China does have its, have its benefits even to, till today. I would say the productivity of China is unmatched. Um, you know, it's it's something that no other factory or com or, or country can do. They just you're just able to hammer out you know the, the, the outputs that nobody else can do around mm -hmm. the world, especially in the garment side. You know, um, you know, but but at the same time, just having a second alternative in case of what's happening. I mean, it's obvious what's happening now with 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 everything we're seeing uh, in in the political side around the world that you know, we really need to have a second option. Um, even with COVID, we really need to have a second option. I mean, one day there's a factory closed in Bangladesh, one day there's a, close, there's a factory closed in Vietnam because of COVID. Now it's China kind of closing cities down, you know? So, so at the same time, you know, we've, we've, one thing that Thailand has benefited from and, uh, is, is that we've never closed down through COVID. Um, I haven't been off a single day during COVID. I've been in the office and factory. Um, I've never, I don't understand what work from home means. <laughs> um, I've, done, I've done that a bit maybe in the morning just to kind of laze off uh, and not not go to work as early because I could you know um, but just because there's you know less to do at the, at the factory or just not be around too many people at the same time but um 
but it it wasn't that we never had that luxury. I would say luxury because a lot of people spend time with their family yeah. doing that too. You know, so so and I know people who who basically been away from their their office for three years now, um, almost. You know, so 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 I've I've been at the factory and the office, and at the same time that's benefited us as well because we've been able to to progress in this difficult time. Yeah, and and when you mentioned um, about not knowing what it means and working and I think you know a lot of us have um, been working. <laughs> through and not have the ability sometimes I think working harder um I think through some of this and, um through some of the things but you know there has been a lot of change occurring um in many different areas and many different industries especially in textile and you mentioned as far as sourcing um but what do you see kind of over the next few years what do you see some of um how do you see that global trade of textiles apparel evolving over the next few years what do you see some as the main main source sources um, or factors affecting sourcing, you know, moving forward. Um, a couple of buzzwords we hear this day and time is sustainability, you know, traceability for brands and retailers. Do you think that's going to be play a bigger role in some of it? I mean, sustainability is something mills have had to do for a very, very long time. Um, I mean, it's everybody talks about sustainability only in the last four or five years, but every mill has had to sustain their business for the last 15, 20 years. Um, we, we had to overcome expensive cotton prices, uh, sorry, expensive water costs 15 years ago, you know, um, when, when the government started charging us more money for, for the water we were going to use for, for producing in our denim. So what do we have to do? We had to look into recycling the water at one point. It's um, a lot of times sustainability is, is a buzzword for the brands because they kind of want to have, they kind of want to know what you're doing to save the planet, but uh, there, there is a cost involved that has to be done prior and that that cost is something we've done for a very very long time um simply because it is a necessity to survive um so so going back to the water saving thing it's a 15 we, we've been doing it for 15 years already we bought a recycling plant on the in the in, in recycling the water at the mill just simply because we didn't want to deal with uh, water being so expensive we had to pay for you know otherwise we would not be able to meet or challenge or or compete with our competitors today uh, similarly, we had to look into uh, recycling of, of raw materials. We've been doing that for eight, seven, eight years now, recycling. I mean, the buzz, the, everybody talks about the recycling thing being a good thing three, four years. You cannot imagine, I've been talking to people for 10 years to do recycling. And if we went 10 years back, everybody said that recycling was bad simply because it didn't look so great, you know, uh, because it didn't, the product didn't look as pure. But now that everybody's talking about recycling, people are talking about saving, people want to put more recycling uh, product uh, uh, goods into their into into their product, you know. So so there's little things in sustainability we've we've been tweaking over this time. Um, even even solar energy, for example, um, it's 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 extremely important to to have a sustainable business at, at a sustainable driven business at your mill to survive. Not only as a storyline for the brands, but actually also to survive. Um, traceability, on the other hand, is something that's very interesting. Um, if we go to the traceability side, I think um, being for the brands to know where their sourcing comes from is is extremely important. But I think that's going to take a long time still to, yeah. to, to, to get into place, simply because people are going to trick the situation a lot of times, um, you know, especially with cotton now at its at its all peak in 10 years, uh, people are going to find alternative ways to to find cotton elsewhere, you know, um, and, 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 and do what they can, you know, it's. 
Uh, we, we unfortunately last year got hit with U.S. cotton crop delayed to us by four to six months, for example. You know, so in the interim, all of a sudden, we had to buy something closer to home um, at, at higher prices at that time as well. You know, so, so as much as we want to be on the traceability side of only right. buying U.S. crop, and obviously then, you know, being able to partner with U.S. cotton um, and do the whole uh, trust protocol <laughs> with, with U.S., which we're a big part and big fan of. Um, you know, we were forced to survive. We had to buy cotton locally just because that's, or not locally, but uh, closer to home to, to, to mitigate that, that issue. So obviously politically, the world has changed. Um, uh, uh, socially the, and politically, the world has changed. So we have to be very, very careful of how, how we manage this um, textile apparel business in the upcoming five years. And it's, it's very clear that inflation has set in. Um, the shipping guys are, are, are obviously making their huge profits now. Um, you know, I, 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 I'm quite lucky last week to sit in a, in a U.S. cotton uh, um, exhibition here in Thailand. We have these seminars here in Thailand pretty often, but all the U.S. cotton people were, flew in from the U.S. actually. Um, to see us, and there was hundred percent attendance actually of all the main guys this time. Who were here. <laughs> you know, so so one of, one of the people they brought in actually was um was a shipping uh, CEO of of, uh, of one of the companies around the world, and and he said, you know what, ten years we've lost money. I'll tell you openly today that you know we're gonna on twenty four billion dollars worth of business, we're gonna make twelve billion dollars next year. You know, so so it's fifty percent profit right there. You know, so so it's um. The, the market has changed. We have to live with the situation we're in. Um, mm -hmm. and, and very, very, it's a five-year plan is quite hard today to, 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 to think of anymore just because we're in an area where in a time when inflation is, is super high. And um, it's very hard to, it's very hard for us to say where the market's going because a lot of the inflation that's happening today doesn't really correlate with the actual uh, let's say raw material price that that should it be correlated to you know so so um so that's that's something that's that's it's interesting times let's put it that way that's for sure boy uh pandemic uh, brought about like you said uh, a lot of inflation um are do higher prices help you to absorb the cost of sustainable production in other words uh fossil fuel use very expensive now uh, compared to um, more uh, renewable energy alternatives, you're talking about solar and all these other things. Is is it more cost effective now for you in light of that? Well, well, the thing is, the thing is, everything's increased, Bob. So, so what happens is because everything's increased in price today, uh, it's there's really no answer to that question, unfortunately. Um, uh, if we, if it's not only that cost is increasing today. Um, it's it's also it's also water. Um, I don't know if you knew know, but the dying uh, dying chemical price have basically doubled as well. Yeah, we, didn't, we didn't we didn't anticipate that back in December um, at all. You know to to have doubled at that point. Um, so so that's been a real challenge. Uh, you know at, at the most we thought okay oil prices would 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 <laughs> would make the indigo prices let's go up thirty or forty percent at most. But you know with it's indigo itself has also doubled. I I don't know the reason for that. Uh, maybe you know more of the reason for that, but but oh, I could really expound on that one. <laughs> but, but this is this is your program, so <laughs> so so you know it's uh, it's okay. There are there are factories that close in China for one, you know, but but you know it's uh it's there's no shortage of of 
chemicals, I don't think at least around the world, you know, so, so, mm-hmm. so there is some gauging that's going on globally. Um, and we did see that part uh, in 10 years ago as well. Um, going back kind of uh, one of the fun stories to talk about, and I, I don't want to get too political on this same time, is um, how, how wheat was brought in advance, you know, in, from in China as well, about six, seven months ago. You know, so, so again, you know, it's, we have, there are little things that we have to, um, we have to see and, and, and work around. But right now we're in challenging times to not be able to, to know what's going to happen next. Um, you don't do cut and sew, do you? You, you, you do fabric, right? Uh, we, do have a, we do have a console place in Laos. Um, oh, okay. That's, that's been a different story, actually. Um, Laos was, uh, Laos took the same stance as China, unfortunately. Which a bit, which took us by surprise, considering um, Laos has always been kind of the younger sister of Thailand. Um, but but because there's been so much Chinese interest in Laos, like there has been in Vietnam, um, they they took a stance and closed their country down completely um, over the last two years. And and actually they've had almost they've had very few deaths as a country, um, you know. But but I think they needed help from from an outside country, like like China, to support their their healthcare system because they only have around six to 10 ventilators mm-hmm. in their whole country. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. uh, of course, they're only a population of 6 million people. So they're quite small country, but, um, but we, we do have the cut. So, and that factory is just reopened on the 1st of March. So it's again. just reopened. Okay. Yeah, so, so we did, we did, we actually did keep it open the last two years, but we kept it small. Um, we, we basically kept uh, a few workers at the factory, kept them busy because simply because we want to make sure that nothing gets, um, now the machines, you know, kind of die down over two years. You know, it's very hard. It's very easy for machines to rust, you know, in a, mm-hmm. in a short time. Obviously, that two years has been at a loss simply because we have such a big factory there that's supposed to produce about 100,000 a month. Um, and we're producing only about 10% to 20% of the production. Yikes. But but, yeah. but but we had to keep it that way because we um, our factory is in a free trade zone and the workers were not allowed to move from their their existing homes to their factory. So we basically had to keep a small unit of people to live in the factory. <laughs> so, wow. so, so yeah, it was, it's been a, it's, it was a challenge. Quite a challenge. Quite a challenge. It is a challenge. I mean, COVID has brought challenges around the world everywhere, right? So, so well, I, ha- I have to ask you one question. I really, then I'll turn it to Jennifer, but uh, what's your opinion of all this on- online buying? That's online, 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 uh, online purchasing of, of clothing. That goes on in the West, in, in particular, as opposed to uh, brick and mortar. Uh, you know what? Online's a bigger thing here in the East than it is in the West. There you go. Okay. As, as much as much as everybody says the West is more, um, I, I feel the online culture here in the East is is such a big, big thing. It's it's just as important. Um, the 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 good thing here is that um, a lot of the product. When people trust a brand, I guess around the world, when people trust a brand, they're willing to buy that from that brand, you know, um, and and that actually makes it it challenges the brand. Let's put it that way, you know, to having their fit in the right place all the time. So the um, online, you see it as kind of a good thing for your business, or doesn't matter where east west, just in, in general, if consumers are buying more online, is that good for you, or uh, for us, doesn't change? Uh, for us, it doesn't really change because our our factories uh, was never was never geared for big brand buying as much as, you know, let's say the mills in Pakistan or Bangladesh or China. 
um, we're, we're a medium-sized brand, a uh, medium-sized company. Um, and, and we've always catered to smaller volumes uh, when, when, we, when we sell product to everybody as well. Now, of course, having said that, um, I kind of bite my own tongue when I say that um, costs are extremely expensive when you do small volume, you know? So, so there is a mis- mix and match on, on what people want to pay to make the online work at the same time. You know, so, but the point of the online over brick and mortar is that surviving as an online brand is much more difficult than a brick and mortar, simply because when people trust your brand online, they'll continue to buy from you. If they're, if, especially in the gene, you know how it goes. Um, when, mm-hmm. when, when they trust that their size 28 is going to be a size 28 and they can buy it from you consistently, they'll always buy from you. You know, with a brick and mortar store, people can go in, try it on. They don't like it. They can try something new. They can, they can you know, they can change things all the time. Um, but with brick and mortar, it's, it's really, you really, really, I, sorry, with, with online, you really have to be on point with, with, with your product more. So I think it challenges brands more and also gives, um, a lot of opportunity to small designers around the world to grow where they're not. Do you think it gives, um, room, a little bit more room for error, Emran, just in the sense that, um, from personal experience, I've, you know, purchased something online and seen and where it's, you know, marketed or, for a certain way or says a certain thing made with, or has, you know, potentially has a cotton logo logo on it. So you purchase it, you get it, you know, and then it shows up and, Oh wait, it's a hundred percent synthetic and there's no cotton in it. Um, you know, a lot <laughs> of the brands have made um, claims of, well, this was made with organic cotton or made with certain things. And, you know, do you feel though that whether it's brick and mortar on, and I say online, you know, anybody can put anything out there. <laughs> you know, do you feel like it's allowing for? Um, of course. Yeah, I think so. I, I agree with you on that part, actually. Um, but but it's it's only online people are are are. It's easier for online people to fail quicker. Yeah. Than brick and mortar people. Let's put it that way. You know, somebody knowing that there's a brick and mortar store they can go to and exchange their product if if it doesn't fit is going to feel more comfortable about buying something uh, that they'll try on and take back. And then online, a person who buys something online and gets cheated once will not get cheated twice. Right. You know? So, so he's, he's going he's gonna to just say, you know what, I, I just don't trust this brand anymore and it's game over. So in, on, on that sense, I think there is there, the reliability of an online, the online brand has to be much more reliable as a supplier than, than, than a brick and mortar store. Um, yeah. And I've seen a lot of, and I've seen, and I've seen a lot of them progress in in phenomenal ways, just because they're putting more of their time and effort and their financials into into the product, uh, less into the, you know, making their 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 stores beautiful, <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> and and yeah, it's uh, there's probably less sales going on as well online most of the time, especially in denim. I think um, it's denim is is all season, you know, so so I think I think that's that's a good thing, you know, so. So yeah, I, I and of course that also that also makes it better for sustainability, as we were talking earlier. You know, less is more. Um, that that's always been an important part. You know, I I do, I do think that the pandemic has done one thing good. Um, yeah. Again, I'm going a bit of a tangent, um, but but the pandemic has done one thing good is it's reduced the need for people to be wasteful. Um, it 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 it's been terrible in the last before the pandemic where brands overbought sold too many things at sale you know in fact they've destroyed their own image um, by by sending those goods to the outlets and then and at one point actually creating a brand within the outlet because that business was better than the actual store you know um but it's it's this whole cheap culture uh, uh cancer culture of buying cheap that, that is an issue 
Um, I think COVID has fixed that in some way. Um, it's you can go into stores now, you can't find your size sometimes just because the deliveries weren't on time. You know, but by the same time, they don't know that as a consumer that the deliveries didn't come on time. They, as a consumer, you think your pro that product has been sold out. You know, so so essentially that that actually makes the brands less wasteful, and the brands then actually have to sell will get better profits because they're able to sell at full retail price. You know, so so, so you see the old model is really having changed with a right. lot of brands. Yeah. Right. Of course, there'll be people who defeat that. Uh, some brands who want to challenge that and still want to have the volumes. In sure. Place. Sure. But, um, I mean, there are there are brands who have particular products that are that sell year in year out, like a polo T-shirt. You know, that's something that's always going to be. It's never going to. It's never going to be on discount just because people always go to the store and buy. It. But that's been the, that they've had that before COVID. It was not that COVID fixed that issue. You know? So, so um, so I I I do hope disposal fashion goes. At least 20, 30% of it goes away. Well, what do you see, um, Amarin, you know, kind of moving forward? Um, how do you see the industry moving forward? Do you see any new things happening now that maybe weren't there? Um, and what do you see kind of some of those um, new things facing or factors facing the industry um, as we go forward in 2022? Well, one is the factories themselves will, will, will face a financial issue right now like like every business mm -hmm. um because supply chains are not as as uh as as easy to work with as before um so so that that's on this on the supplier side um on 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 the the good part obviously is and and going forward uh with 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 product is is people have to be more transparent of what they're doing you know um and and that's going to be a good thing for the next 20 years um I say 20 years because it's going to take a very, very long time to be transparent. Right. Um, you know, it's all, everybody's asking for paper on paper and paper um, of, of documentation. And I don't think paper on paper of documentation is, 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 is the answer to what, what traceability, let's put it, you know, there has to be a way to um, embed uh, something into the things we buy from, from like the E3 cotton, for example, you know, there is there has to be something that has to be embedded to the raw material, something that's be embedded to the indigo, a blockchain technology that's in place, where where people in twenty years can go and scan a, a pair of jeans, and the pair of jeans will tell them who made the jeans, um, which factory was used, uh, how much water was used, how much indigo was used to produce this quality, and and actual data to 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 make that product, um, to make that person really feel what they're doing to the planet <laughs> get my point yeah. so, so it's you know it's it's paper trail is 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 one way to work around the whole um uh way to work around but but it's not obviously the it's it's the start you know to get people interested um now one of the things one of the things i feel going into the future which is going to be very very important is obviously close to home uh farm to table uh type things that we used to do 40 years ago you know before the world opened up and everybody started uh the U.S. want to sell to to Asia, and Asia want to sell to U.S. Um, you know, and and working around this whole expensive structure of shipping and time, uh, which which is unnecessary. Uh, farm tables become very important parts. So producers in the U.S. are going to use more of that produce for their U.S. base. Produce in Asia is going to use more of that produce for what their brands in Asia. You know, and I feel that's going to be a very very big thing in the next five to ten years. It well, is, it is one of yeah. as, as well for us, by the way. 
No, I appreciate that. And Amber, I think we are about at a time. I know Bob and I probably have a lot more questions for you. So that just means we'll have to get you back on the show in the future. <laughs> but um, Aaron, if any of our listeners should have any questions or want to connect with um, Atlantic Meals and the team, what is the best way for them to do that? Well, so they can connect through um, my email, uh, which you can share, or they can uh, just, just send a message through our website. Um, and of course, if they want, yeah, they can ask the list. The listeners can ask through you guys as well, of course. Perfect. <laughs> Well, awesome. Well, Amron, I appreciate it. And Bob, thanks so much. And I'd also like to thank you, our listeners, for joining us and hope that you enjoyed our show. Should you have any questions about the E3 Sustainable Cotton Program, please email me at e3cotton at basf.com. Also, don't forget to visit us on social media on Instagram and Facebook at E3 Sustainable Cotton. So thanks so much and see you next time.